Hey, True Crimers, it's your host, Jonah B., and welcome to another episode of True Crime-ish, where we try to tell the stories as true as possible around here. For starters, I must say, not every mistake is foolish, but some can definitely be avoided. February is coming to an end, which is borderline crazy because I swear 2024 has just started and I feel like it's already starting to pass me by, which is more than a little nerve wracking for myself. I've set some goals for me this year and I plan to obtain them by any means. So with that being said, I place like enormous pressure on myself. So y'all can understand why I'm kind of looking at this calendar a little crazy. But anywho, we have covered all the awareness campaigns that I wanted to address this month. So let's go ahead and jump into the story. 1978 Speedway, Indiana was given true horror movie vibes. Like there was just crime after crime after crime occurring. And the cops oftentimes could not find any rhyme or reason. And I don't mean you're like your classic petty thefts or someone whacking their spouse for cheating. I mean real puzzling cases. In July of 78, a woman named Julia Cyphers was shot in the head and killed while showing a man an item that had been listed as for sale at a garage sale. In September of 78, a six-day bombing spree occurs and, no pun intended, but literally rocks the town. And then in November of 78, you have four young adults slash teenagers who go missing and a group of highly incompetent cops completely botching the scene. On November 17, 1978, Brian Kring, an employee at the town's Burger Chef, was out on a date with another employee of the Burger Chef. And if you're a foodie like me, you may be curious as to what a Burger Chef is because, you know, my fat self saved you a little time just by looking it up because I'm like, I wonder if I can go get me a burger from Burger Chef. But it was a fast food chain that got its origins in Indianapolis and reached its peak in the 1970s with over 1,400 locations in North America. The company eventually got a little too ambitious and ended up having to sell the company to Hardee's, which... I love, by the way, and that's your foodie lesson for the day. But anywho, moving on, Brian, who was a high schooler at the time, normally had a curfew of midnight, but since he was going to the burger chef after his date to help the crew close that night since they were short-stabbed, he had the okay to stay out a little later. And his date was just going along for the ride. She was actually supposed to be at work that night, but she ended up getting a co-worker to cover the shift so she could go out with Brian. And to me, that all checks out. It makes sense. I've served at more than a few places, and I would always find myself just there on my off days, like where I was going to eat, help out. Or just bother my coworkers. I'm always, I'm a creature of habit. I'm always just going to be hanging out in my workspace. But that's me. So the two are pulling into the burger shelf on Crawfordsville Road a little after midnight, getting ready to see their co-workers, 17-year-old Ruth Ellen Shelton, 16-year-olds Daniel Davis and Mark Flemings, and 21-year-old assistant manager Jane Fry. 
Daniel was not even supposed to be closing that night, but a co-worker called in with quote-unquote car issues. So Daniel called his mom mid-shift, asking to close that night to help out his team, and she said yeah. And Mark was not supposed to be closing that night either, but he came in to cover for Brian's date. As Brian was pulling in, though, he and his date realized that they did not see Jane's Chevrolet Vega in the parking lot. But, you know, that it, that wasn't alarming. He continued to drive around to the back and park there. As he is parking, he sees that the back door is ajar, which is slightly more weird since the door is normally closed with a metal bar against it. But Brian decides to walk on through the door. Once he is in through the back, he doesn't see his co-workers anywhere. He walks throughout the entire store, even, you know, peeking his head in the freezer, but still no sign of his co-workers. He goes into the manager's office, and that is when he sees his safe is wide open. And then he also notices that all the cash registers are empty of cash. Only coins remain. And at this point, I'm pretty sure Brian has had enough of the hair standing up on the back of his neck. So he decides to make a call. And I'm not sure who he initially called, but that person told him to call the police. And that is exactly what he did next. The police arrive and they see the same odd scene that Brian described on the dispatch call, but they do not consider this to be a serious case. From what they could see, there was no sign of a struggle. There was only $581 accounted for that was taken. And even though both James and Ruth's purse were still left on the scene, the police had a theory. They said, hmm. They thought it was pretty likely that the four-store employees had robbed the place. They were sure that the four had hit the town, you know, partying that night with the money that they had taken from the store. They would turn up tomorrow and we'll just handle it all then. So no photos were taken, no evidence collected, no dust for fingerprints, no sense of urgency at all. Matter of fact, they actually allowed the store owners and employees to finish cleaning up that place and shutting it down for the night. They even gave them the all clear to open again in the morning. And even though I researched this case, I know the words I just said to be true, but it still just it baffles me. I could never, like honestly, in a million years, walk into a scene with multiple people, let alone children missing, nowhere to be found, and think nothing of it. I don't know if they know something I don't like, if these kids are the troublemakers of the neighborhood and known for getting into mischief, but even with that being said, I'm sure they would not be able to keep this job, let alone be promoted to assistant manager. So nothing about the cops' tactics or theories began to make sense to me, but the cops are feeling pretty good about themselves at the moment, so let's just keep moving forward. During the early morning of Saturday, November 18th, around 4.30 a.m., an abandoned Chevrolet Vega was found in a park parking lot just a mile from the Burger Chef and half of a mile from the Speedway Police Department. The car was, of course, registered to Jane, the manager from Burger Chef. And boy, you know, I would just have loved to see the cops' faces 
after realizing that possibly something more sinister had occurred than they originally theorized. And I wonder how incompetent and useless they felt after realizing that they had just given the all clear to clean up a possible crime scene. The cops had another theory, though. They were thinking that the four had been kidnapped in a possible robbery gone wrong, and they were already five hours behind. Helicopters were put in the air to do an aerial search. Police formed teams to do ground searches and potential eyewitnesses were being interviewed. The Speedway police force was officially all hands on deck. But sadly, all hands on deck was just a little bit too late. The following morning, Sunday, November 19, 1978, a property owner in Johnson County made a gruesome discovery. On his land, he found bodies that were all face down. Bodies of four children is what it looked like. And the police from Johnson County were called, as well as the Speedway police. Once they arrived, the kids were easily identified since they all still had on their brown and orange Burger Chef uniforms. 16-year-old Daniel and 17-year-old Ruth They were both shot numerous times with a .38 caliber handgun. Jane was stabbed twice in the chest, and the wound was so deep that the blade was stuck and removed later during autopsy. The handle was never found. And Mark? Mark was beaten what could only be assumed as a chain due to the lacerations, and he died by choking on his own blood. All four of them had money and jewelry that was still on them once they were found, hinting at the fact that the robbery may not have been the sole reason for the murders, or our perps are not that good at their profession. Moving into the actual investigation, on the night of the murders, a 16-year-old eyewitness saw two suspicious men in a car outside the burger chef just before closing. Based on the eyewitness testimony, both men were white and in their 30s. One man had a beard, the other was clean-shaven with light-colored hair. The police had models of the suspects created in clay to assist with the investigation. Investigators began to theorize again, and, and at this point, their theories are just like pure baloney to me, but... Anywho, the employees were actually the victims of a crew of about three to five men who had been robbing fast food restaurants, particularly burger chefs and shooting people in Indianapolis. They had no clue who this group was or where they were doing the murder slash robbery, but they were feeling good about this lead and, you know, they had nothing else to go with anyway you know no evidence was collected nothing else so they said let's just take this and run with it later in 1978 a man in a bar in Greenwood bragged that he had been involved in the killings police was left a tip and they went and picked the guy up for questioning the guy unfortunately passed a polygraph claiming not to have been involved and the officers were unable to bring charges on other grounds The man did prove to not be a total waste of time by providing the names of other guys who he suggested belonged to the fast food robbery gang, whom investigators suspected may have been involved in the case. While following up on these leads in Franklin, officers spotted a man who bore a strong resemblance to the bearded man composite. 
summoned for a lineup, the man shaved his beard, which, you know, he had for the previous five years, the night before he was to appear. A neighbor of his, who had not been spotted by the original witness, but who had been named by the Greenwood suspect, later on went to prison for armed robbery. Another associate named by the Greenwood suspect, who fit the description of the fairhead, fair-haired man also was imprisoned for other armed robberies of fast food restaurants. However, without confessions, despite offers of plea deals to any suspects not directly responsible for the killings and without direct physical evidence of the involvement of the suspects in the murders, the police were not able to make any arrest. After about six years of no new leads, in 1984, Marion County Sheriff's Department Detective Mel Wilsley received a very random call. It was from an inmate at the Pendleton Correctional Facility. His name was Donald Forrester, and he was serving a 95-year rape sentence. Detective Wilsley took the call, and what Donald had to say was, pretty much blow the investigation wide open. Donald claimed he was involved in the murders and he was willing to confess in order to avoid his scheduled transfer to a very violent state prison. Detective Wilsley and another officer, Gary Maxey, would spend over 18 months investigating Donald's confession, which seems oddly lengthy to me. But when Wilsley and Maxie meet with Donald, he confessed to shooting Daniel and Ruth. He clearly didn't want to get transferred to that other prison because he didn't hesitate telling them everything that he knew. But Wilsley and Maxie still weren't sure until Donald led them to the crime scene. He was able to accurately describe the location and position of the bodies when they were found. He also knew about the broken handle of the knife, information that was kept from the public. Wilsley and Maxie, they're like, okay, we finally got our guy. So they asked him what truly happened that night at the burger ship. Donald goes on to explain that James' brother, James, owed money on a drug deal. So he and three others went to the restaurant to threaten Jane. But when Mark intervened to protect Jane, and quote unquote, side note, I read that Mark and Jane may have had a little something going on, but anywho, a fight broke out. And during that time, Mark fell and hit his head on the bumper of a car. They thought he was either dead or dying. So Donald and his accomplices decided to abduct and kill all the employees to eliminate all the witnesses. After his confession, he gave the names of three men he claimed were responsible for killing Mark and Jane. Then he led the police to a spot where he claimed he had thrown the gun into a river, but a thorough search of the river, and they didn't find a weapon. Wellesley then needed to interview Donald's ex-wife, and she gave a little shocking information as well. She said that Donald had driven her out to a wooded area shortly after the murders. She said he wadded into a creek and fished out several shell casings, which he then took home and flushed them down the toilet. FYI, anything that can't be broken down through your septic system will most likely still be there years later unless you get the tank pumped. So not the best idea to go home flushing stuff in your toilet. But anywho, 
we'll see, then got a warrant to search the septic tank of the house, which turned up several .38 caliber shell cases, just as Donald's wife had said. Those shell cases happened to match the bullets that were used on Daniel and Ruth. So you would assume that it was all the evidence they needed to prove that Donald was telling some kind of truth, you know, along with that in his confession, like slam dunk. But unexpectedly, word got out that Donald was talking to the cops and all of a sudden he recanted his confession, claimed that it was all coerced. Unfortunately for Wilsley and Maxie, the shell casings weren't enough evidence to prove Donald committed the murders, so he was never charged. He later died in prison from cancer in 2006 at the age of 55, and this case still remains unsolved to this day. And that's pretty much it with that. I just want to hit y'all with a few more details about the case. At one point during the investigation, Bergeshev offered a $25,000 reward along with an anonymous donor who offered another $10,000. The Indianapolis Star also set up a way for the potential informants to keep their identity secret while still being eligible for the reward. But no one has come forward. In 2018, four decades after the murders, Indianapolis police released a photograph of a knife blade. Yes, the knife that was broken from its handle and was removed from Jane's body. Indiana state police officials finally released evidence in the case, and they also reiterated that they were still on the case four decades later, but with no new leads. One year after that, the case was back in the news, which ignited dozens of new tips and old ones as well about the murders. Arthur Julie Young, she was only six years old when the murders happened, but they left a huge impact on her so much that in 2019, she released her book called The Burger Chef's Murders in Indiana. It highlighted what she believed was a true public account of that faithful night with the help of TV and news reports. That same year, Kevin Greenlee of the Murder Sheet podcast made a Freedom of Information Act request to the FBI seeking its file on the case. And what he got back was a 414 page of heavily redacted information that unearthed things no one knew during the investigation. Police were heavily interested in a male employee who Jane had possibly fired, but the employee wasn't aware that he was fired and he coincidentally didn't show up for his shift that night. But he did show up later that night after midnight around the time police were called, but he was gone when they arrived. There was also evidence in that redacted file that Jane was getting harassing calls around that time as well. Just like a lot of weird things that were happening leading up to the murders that the public was not aware of. And in 2022, Discovery Plus and Investigation Discovery produced a one-hour documentary titled Murdered at the Burger Joint. And it put the spotlight back on the unsolved murders, but once again, no new leads or new tips would lead detectives in the right direction. At the beginning of this year, after being home to multiple different stores and restaurants, the city of Speedway received a plan for the former Burger Chef restaurant to be demolished. 
Because the building is privately owned, there is no word on what the owner's future plans are. But the community and family members of the victims were supportive of the building being taken down. Roof sister Teresa Jeffrey said, I'm very thankful the building will be removed because I feel it has affected the entire community and brings a little bit peace. But even with that, you're always going to know that it was there. That's never going away. And of course, y'all, with all of that tragedy I just spoke of, we can't end this episode without highlighting the lives of the victims in this tragic case. Mark was friendly and selfless with a sense of style, and his sister also worked at the burger shop as well, and it was just mind-boggling to think that she was at work that same day as well, and to think that she could have been caught up in all of this mess. Daniel was a talented photographer who made loved ones smile. Jane was a leader with a sense of humor and a heart of gold. Ruth, she was creative, honest, and kind with a love for music. Because of the way the Indiana police handled the investigation by assuming that this was just some petty theft, some small crime, even it being the this very horror of a year for them with all these crazy things happening, you would think that they would have given this at least a second thought. But no, and because of this incompetence, an already tough and perplexing case is still unsolved. In conclusion, the town of Speedway, Indiana has not given up hope that one day justice will be served on behalf of the Burger Chef 4. To this day, there is still one detective assigned to this case and an active Facebook page with over 1,300 followers still invested in the case being solved. As you can sense, the town of Speedway has been suffering long enough without knowing who senselessly killed those four young adults that night. This year would make 46 years and many people, especially the Murder Sheet Pod, believe this case can still be solved with the little evidence police do have. And with that being said, I do encourage you guys to highly go and check out that Facebook page. Check out the little comments that have been left. And if anything is familiar, please contact the Speedway Police Department. They are still taking tips and all of that to this day. And that concludes this episode, y'all. Until next time. Bye. Bye.